You look like you're in some sort of like hazy steam room or something. So, so <clears throat> I have had this, you know, I have this like black tape over, you know, I have electrical tape over the camera and I have had that for at least, I mean, at least four years, if not five, the same piece of tape. And until last week, you know, the camera always seemed to be completely clear every time I pulled the tape off. And now it has been fuzzy the last two times. So I don't know what's going on. Our listeners will really be upset about this distorted image. Yeah. I'm not even well, yeah, it kind of looks like a, you know, a submarine under the sea or a yeah. pineapple under the sea or whatever in, the phrase was. You're in soft focus. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions by learning how to sew. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from rainy Washington, D.C., with me on the line, as usual, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Real. David, how is it going? As elated as I was when I was upgraded to co-host, I am smarting with anguish at the change in protocol that you just introduced uh, yeah, the fact that... I mean, it's not always now. I, I, uh, I have at this point, David has not heard it because I haven't posted it yet, but I did record an episode with a different co-host, um, something that we had put together while David was, uh, indisposed through moving and traveling and then, um, uh, ended up actually recording after he was able to record again, but because I'd already set it up and, uh, yeah, so I can't say as always now, you're not always the other person on the line. The insult is unbearable. The dishonor can rough. only be expunged. Buddy. I am mobilizing my divisions. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about the the, the basis of that. Uh, you'll probably hear. I'll probably get that one up before or after I get this one up. Depends on which one ends up needing more editing. But uh, yeah, and in the meantime, throughout all this episode, I want all of you to have the image in your head of me trying to learn how to sew a button back on a shirt. Uh, my dryer has decided that it is engaging in a war on buttons during this war on Christmas. And it's a new front that I had not expected to be opened. Um, and uh, I have my sewing materials in front of me, but I haven't actually sewn a button on a shirt in like 20 years. I don't know why it hasn't come up in 20 years, but it hasn't. Yeah, it doesn't even occur to me that you're... It, it seems like there's got to be a different word for sewing I mean, other than sewing for putting a button on. Because it is the action of using a needle and thread to bind something to cloth. Yes. But sewing strikes me as being binding cloth to itself. But I suppose I must be wrong there. I think sewing is too dignified a word for the task that I have to learn how to undertake now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Well... Speaking of things that were dignified, the Weekly Standard um, has announced its end this week. Um, that's There's been a bunch of big news this week, but we're going to start off talking about this because, um, as regular listeners yeah. will know, we have this fantasy in our head of reasonable conservatives we want to debate with. Um, they obviously don't exist, as you'll hear when I post my other episode. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the Weekly Standard... Um, is another example of that unfortunate tendency, which we saw in the midterms, which is that when the crazy people on the right go as crazy as they can possibly go, well, no, it's not true. They'll go crazier. There's no bottom. Um, when they go crazy, the, the people who get punished in the wave election are the moderates, the moderates in Congress, the moderate publications. Not the Weekly Standard is normally a moderate publication, but um, you know, compared to what's going on, it's a relatively moderate publication. And you know, it's the one that because it takes the principled anti-Trump stance in a party that has gone crazy for Trump, they've had to close their doors. Yeah, I um, well, I was thinking about things to talk about for the show, and I thought about the fact that the last couple episodes, not that one of them has yet been made available, uh, but as our listeners, if they listen in order, will know, uh, the last couple episodes we talked a lot about deaths, you know, the deaths of McCain and the deaths of, or the death of McCain and the death of uh, George H.W. Bush. 
And so I kept, I thought about a lot of what had happened in the last week as these various deaths, you know, the death of the weekly standard, the death of the affordable care act, um, even the death of democracy in Wisconsin, uh, and perhaps elsewhere. But yeah, when it comes to weekly standard, it was an interesting thing. I read a, I read a really interesting article in the Atlantic by Franklin Foer, who was the uh, editor of the New Republic and described loving the Weekly Standard until the Iraq War period, mm-hmm. in which he said the gymnastics that the Weekly Standard went through. I mean, the article had a, mentioned a lot of different factors here, but um, he said it was a, sort of a combination of getting too comfortable in their place and not seeking new, not really seeking to incorporate new writers and ideas of the same degree of talent as their original cohort, but simply let that cohort kind of go to seed and and stay at the magazine combined with the extent to which they simply became a pro Iraq war anti-democrat, you know, anti-cut-and-run, anti-anti-war magazine, that they, at that point, became, he said, essentially unreadable. And it struck me as interesting, not only because of just the way he described it, but because it made me think about the fact that, you know, I wasn't reading the Weekly Standard before the Iraq War. I wasn't really reading any of that stuff before, you know, when I was 12, when I was 13, you know, um, when I came to the weekly standard, I came to it as relatively speaking, a partisan rag. And it was still interesting to read, to get that perspective. It was a bracing perspective compared to the stuff that you would see in the New York times or even the Washington post and the Washington post I mean, 10 years ago, I had, I had the sense that the Washington Post was a much more conservative paper than it is today, uh, for example. I don't know if you shared that perspective, but, you know, there's this, there's this, um, <clears throat> and of course, part, part of this comes from Trump, but there's this perspective that, like, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, mainstream media are all super left, and rediscovering the gradations between these publications and not only between these publications, but between the various periods within the history of each of these publications uh, strikes me as really interesting and valuable. And unfortunately, as you say, here we are at what is perhaps the most interesting period in the weekly standards history and is killed precisely for that reason. Right. Yeah, you know, and, and my, you know, if you want, to, I don't know if you want to go into the details, perhaps of why we speak so confidently about it being, you know, killed rather than simply folding. Because aren't all, you know, isn't all media uh, under threat? Why are we? I mean, they've actually had the announcement here? that they're that they're over, though, right? Like the the publisher didn't want to sell them. That's my that's my point. Is oh, we'll just to keep this a gift for all time. We we should explain. We should not assume that our listeners uh, necessarily know what we're talking about. We should do a little of the, of the groundwork. The, the, I mean, the point here that, you know, the based on the um, revelations of the staff who are now cast in the wilderness a few weeks before Christmas, uh, the owner had the option of selling and chose to dissolve the and if I understand correctly, that same publisher is part of putting out a they're trying to put out a magazine for the Washington Examiner. And I had heard right. at least one theory that part of closing Weekly Standard is to harvest their list for the Washington Examiner uh, magazine, which I mean, would be quite a loss as uh, I don't know. I don't know um, how broadly read certain newspapers are, but the Washington Examiner is that one that there's like at every newspaper like set of newspaper, those newspaper boxes, whatever you call them, where you can pick up newspapers. Um, you know, they're everywhere in DC. Um, mm. And you know, their headlines are, 
definitely more on the Fox News crazy level <laughs> of interpretation of events. Um, so much so that um, I can't remember how this came up in context, but I was discussing something with somebody else, and they brought up something the Washington Examiner said on like the Google News Feed or whatever. And I was like, oh, <laughs> let me show you some other headlines the Washington Examiner did today. And it was just like, oh, okay, that's a crazy newspaper. Um, so I would imagine if they do a magazine that it is going – I mean, if it's like – I have heard – I have heard people say that they are familiar with some of the people who will be leading the magazine and they're people that they trust to be better than what the newspaper is doing. Um, I don't know if that'll be true, uh, hopefully. Um, cool. But you, know, you mentioned the Washington Post as well. I didn't – I don't know – prior to Jeff Bezos taking it over and sort of reviving it, I really wasn't paying much attention to the Washington Post as anything other than like a D.C. area paper um, until I moved to D.C., um, I don't know that I ever really thought because, you know, I would say, oh, yeah, it's the New York Times and there's the Wall Street Journal. And then maybe you mentioned the Washington Post. The Washington Post has really skyrocketed back to the forefront in a way that it as a national newspaper. Yeah, yeah as a absolutely. National newspaper. Well, for me, I, um, I mean, I, you know, I learned about Irving Crystal and Bill Crystal at Yale, uh, but it wasn't until I was working for a, an extremely conservative Republican congressman that I read the weekly standard national review. Um, even, I think we got copies of the spectator even, um, or maybe, yeah, well, let me just put that in parentheses, uh, and move on. But, and, and obviously the Washington post, <clears throat> um, but my, uh, you know, then also the, didn't always regularly read the Wall Street Journal, but also the New York Times, clearly. But anyway, you know, I remember at that time that the Washington Post was, um, it was very, it, sent, it was centrist. I mean, it was actually centrist. Hmm. Um, and so that's more conservative than the New York Times. And, you know, obviously more conservative than you know, things like uh, the New Republic or um, or the Nation, Mother Jones. Yeah. We've also hit – have we done an episode where we talked about – I know that at one point we discussed doing an episode about um, various media sources and our impressions of them um, and particular writers especially. I don't think we ever actually did much discussion on we that. We probably did not. That sounds far too organized for anything. That does sound actually. a little too organized for us. But that's one that I've been thinking about for a while, and maybe we should do that at some point. I don't – my introduction to the Weekly Standard, I don't know when I first learned about it. I remember in an interview for – like an alumni interview for a college thing, seeing a copy of the Weekly Standard on the desk of the person who was interviewing me and already knowing that it was like a, a conservative publication. But mm -hmm. I don't remember where I got that impression and I don't remember if I'd ever actually read it myself. Um, I do recall – I don't remember how many years – this was you know, a few years, maybe – five to ten years ago i really have i wouldn't be shocked if somebody said it was 15 years ago i remember the economist which has always been my that's been my like that was my foundational text as a child and going on into the present the economist um had a description where it was talking about the weekly standard in some column way back when and it was saying that you know you can still get new ideas from the weekly standard you can still learn new things from the weekly standard as opposed to they said the national review where you'll open it up and you'll just learn abortion is bad once again. And, and I, that has struck me as a, I think at that time I wasn't entirely clear on the differences between the national review and the weekly standard. Um, but man, that really holds up. Uh, I mean, I complained in a previous episode about um, the national review column, which I think was, it might've just been online only the one about how everybody, women should be voting for Mitt Romney because he's, he's got a lot of sons instead of daughters. Um, <laughs> Like that was that's that was just completely insane. But um, but that I but I I did like that idea that the Weekly Standard is trying to introduce to you something new, whereas the National Review has sort of become. I mean, the Weekly Standard was founded by people raised on the National Review, who sort of like, well, now we want to go in this other direction, which is not really necessarily yeah, a well, direction, but you're keeping the young blood in and the ideas moving. Yeah, the the National Review is, you know, I haven't given it much attention, but 
particularly, I mean, I think I, you know, I came late to like, to write, I, I probably read articles by him, but I didn't really take it out of the crowd, uh, Kevin Williamson until mm. the whole kerfuffle where the Atlantic, uh, hired him and then fired him right. for his, uh, um, uh, sort of explosive, uh, characterizations of abortion, as I recall. It was just, or it wasn't, he, he, some it was about that, hanging um, women who had abortions. Women, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Women, you know, if you take, if you take the pro-life position seriously, then, you know, you would be hanging women who have abortions. He said something like that. And, um, so, uh, you know, so I only sort of came to know that he existed as a result of that. But after he was fired, he went back to the national review and he's written some interesting articles there that do strike me as meeting that standard that you, as it were, that you just said of, um, being able to hear something new. And even if you don't agree with it, actually having to, um, having an opportunity to say, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's actually a good point. It's not dispositive. It doesn't prove the argument, but it's a good point that I'm glad I had the opportunity to consider. Um, you know, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't like followed him, so I don't know right. whether the weekly standard is, uh, or excuse me, whether the national review has actually done particularly well in uh, sort of adding to the, the debate as it were. And, you know, my understanding is that they briefly flirted with basically the, you know, anti-Trumpism and then folded like a cheap right. suit after yeah. The election, which was is it? Pretty... Oh, my mind just went blank. Was it National Review or the Weekly Standard where they had a big cover page editorial on why they would never support Trump? Yeah, I think it was both of them. It was both of them. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Um, well, the Kevin Williamson thing. So, I again, as you said, didn't pick, couldn't pick him out of a crowd prior to that incident, and then he put out a few columns around that time, and I remembered I had the exact opposite experience of you, where I tried to read some of his columns because some people said, well, you know, he went a little hyperbolic, but he actually has good things to say. And the ones that I read were total garbage, completely not worth reading with no new ideas, which just goes oh, to no, show I agree that... Um, I, I do agree with that as of that moment. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, but th there were others that I remember later on seeing. And I think there's a recent one, too, where he's... Um, maybe something about immigration. Hmm. But I, I can't recall. I, I, I don't want to put my... Nick out <laughs> any more than I already have. That is, Kevin but, Williamson is not the hill you want to die on. Uh, well, yeah, but I was going to use that as an example of how, um, you know, one of the strange phenomena of um, social media is that, uh, you know, if I'm following a bunch of left-leaning people on Twitter, Twitter or conserv moderate conservatives, then they share a lot of like, oh, can you believe this terrible thing Kevin Williamson wrote? Um, and so you only read the bad articles. And so you only see the crazy stuff. Right. Um, right. Like right. that's part of the bubble that's difficult to get out of. Right. 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 Well, and I mean, just one example, um, that we were talking about briefly before the show, but it's a, it's one that I, um, think is maybe a good example to say, like, what are we actually talking about? Cause right now, if someone's listening to this, the very likely the sort of example of a brave, different idea that they would have in their heads would be, you know, what Kevin Williams wrote about, William, Williamson wrote about, the that got him fired. And just to be clear, that is not why I'm, you know, hanging women for exercising their right to uh, seek medical care and determine their own families, you know, is not something that I'm characterizing as a like valuable uh, contrarian take. Um, an example that we were talking about before the show is the way in which, you know, people on the left in America often have a great deal of faith in international organizations, international law, and often hold up, international conventions uh, that, like, all the countries of the world except the United States 
Angola and Syria, you know, have signed on to as example, you know, as cudgels to beat American unilateralism uh, with. And the, the kind of reasoned argument against that position um, is something that you would be able to find in these kinds of, in the Weekly Standard, for example. You know, I can't think of a specific article at the moment, but I, I remember getting this sort of reasoned sense of saying, for example, um, you know, and I saw with my own eyes traveling around the world places where, in, in, I remember in Georgia, the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi, um, seeing ramps next to stairs or um, going for, you know, uh, going from the road up to a sidewalk that looked like they were ostensibly for um, disabled people to make the sidewalks wheelchair accessible. But the way that it had been implemented over the city was made it clear that there was no serious attempts to actually make them work. It was purely uh, utterly worthless, utterly useless, uh, just concrete that had been dumped on the ground because often the um, the grade was so high that it would have been impossible for someone to use them, even assisted by other people. And, you know, when I walking around and seeing these things again and again, it's just like, how can I possibly explain why this, you know, what I'm seeing in front of me? And it, and it struck me as the most likely explanation being that Georgia wanted to basically make itself out to be another member of the club, uh, signing on to this position, saying, oh, we too have committed to make our cities wheelchair accessible, but not actually having the follow-through that a country like the United States would, because of its systems of... Uh, the, the, the full institutions of legalism in our government that would ensure some degree of implement, implementation of any international commitments that we... Uh, that we took on, you know, they can sign those documents for pr purposes of prestige, for political purposes, and not worry about the follow-on effects, whereas the United States, and this is, you know, perhaps that sounds absurd in the age of Trump, but still, you know, the United States has uh, structures that would render signing on to feel-good legislation extremely costly. Um, and that kind of pushback on international sort of feel-good movements um, struck me as that's, that is an example of something that, again, not dispositive, not a stake through the heart of multilateralism and international law, but a, uh, a degree of skepticism that I want to be inoculated against. By having read it and thought about it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's it's very important. I mean, you're, you've basically described it's important to see other perspectives. You understand why people <laughs> yeah, have other shock. views. It's not really what we do on this podcast, but I can understand why you'd want that. Yeah, but that's the. I mean, well, we try also... in our own sort of very artificial way to like, you know, hey, I, I like I heard that there's some like conservatives who are pretty smart and and maybe we should like talk to each other about what those people are saying i don't know man sounds a little radical uh yeah, yeah but of course part of the difficulty what i found is a difficulty and um something that you no know, this had been bothering me around the 2016 election and it has um i've seen other friends on facebook asking the same question which is um what are the conservative sources that i can read that will introduce me to their points of view in a reasonable way that aren't, you know, some of the national reviews, crazy vitriol where they say thing, just learn abortion is a bad thing yet again. Right. Um, you know, it's hard to find a source on the other side in part because our emotions will drive us away from arguments that aren't phrased in a way that is conducive to our egos. We don't want to pick up a thing that tells us, Oh, those liberals are so evil and wrong about X, Y, and Z for, you know, these reasons, an article can make a perfectly coherent argument that you really need to be exposed to, but your mind will reject it if it's phrased in a way that makes you want to reject it. 
by yeah. feeling that you're under attack from the author. And it's really difficult to yeah. strike that balance. So what we really, but the problem is there's no market for a magazine that says we're the magazine liberals should read to learn about conservative ideas. Well, there's no market that? for any of these magazines. Yeah, well, that's true. There's no market for the I mean, that's, they all, would, I mean, they yeah. all, you know, none of them are making a profit as I, I mean, I think very few of them are, are making a, an actual profit. That's true. Um, and they're definitely not making a profit through, you know, challenging people. I mean, the ones who, who are making a profit, I think, are generally um, pretty ideologically coherent and crystallized. But that, actually, I mean, that would be good data to have. I don't know if it's even available because a lot of these right. um, are probably not sharing their books. But I, think but I was going to say that just to, to respond to what your, your basic point there, I think that... Um, it is possible, but I think what it takes is, I think it, I think it's, you know, people are not blank slates. People do have native structures to their brains and the native structure is, as you described, this um, tendency to identify the self with a group and then feel any, you know, feel that any uh, criticism of that group is an attack on the self and respond accordingly. Um, but, but it is possible to train people to, you know, to, to feel that attack and respond in that, you know, whatever that natural way is for them to respond, but then to be, you know, to recognize, to learn, to recognize that feeling as something that is good. And, you know, maybe it's just a different kind of, you know, maybe it isn't trainable. Maybe it is a reflection of a different inherent sort of character of the personality. But, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like the feeling of working out. I didn't always like that, but I've learned to like it, for example. You um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure that my saying that comes as an attack on... Is my the very Some basis people. of my being is very <laughs> my Timos has been offended. Yeah, Tumo, Tumos, Tumos. Okay, yeah. well, yeah. that's for those of you who've read um, Fukuyama and The Last Man and The End of History, or um, Plato, or Plato. Really, any work that deals with a subject, but. Um, yeah, Plato's probably more a more common source for people to have read that. I honestly have not read that much Plato. Um, I really couldn't stand Plato or Aristotle. And Socrates was like, oh, that's an interesting thing to see. The first time I read some Socrates, and I was like, okay, I don't need to read any more Socrates now. Yeah. It is, it is funny sometimes thinking about sort of like if I have kids – are they going to read Socrates? Like, is anyone going to make, is anybody going to make them or not? I mean, are they going to read Plato? You know, is anyone going to make them read Plato? If they don't, am I going to try? <laughs> it sounds like an insane thought, but, um, cool. We'll probably force them to read at least part of it. Well, there's a really interesting article that I read. Um, there was a, it was a blog post actually by a scholar. at somewhere in California, Stanford, Berkeley, maybe UC system somewhere, perhaps. Anyway, um, talking about going through the Stanford undergrad Jewett uh, core curriculum and reading um, reading Galileo, and she you know she did this really good, very valuable job of distinguishing. Like, this is the text, and you read the text. And you test yourself against the difficulty of understanding what the point of the text is. And perhaps that is valuable in some way because you're struggling with a hard text and learning to push yourself to, to solve it and understand what it's saying. But then on another level, the value of that text and the value of exposing students to that text is not really, I mean, it, it's something that you could just, say it's something you just reduce to a sentence and tell the student you know the importance of that text to western civilization is that it was 
one of the founding documents of Western empiricism to say, you know, here I am, I have this little gadget that I have invented and I am looking at the sky and by doing so, I can tell that the things that have been told to me are wrong because the spots on the moon are like this and the shadows are like that and the activity around, you know, Jupiter is whatever. You know, that's the, that's the importance of the text. Um, and what do you gain and what do you lose from forcing the student to grapple with, like, this translation of an Italian describing the depths of shadows in craters on the moon, you know? That's a really... Uh, that's So as somebody who's been through law school... Uh, let, me, <laughs> let me note that that is exactly how law school generally is, where they make you read this long opinion, a lot of them in the first year classes, written in, you know, it's Lord Cook writing something in just ancient, ancient, you know, well, not ancient, ancient, but, you know, outdated English, um, where they spell the word show like S-H-E-W, and that's one of the, we're always, <laughs> did you shoe him, the, thing, the, the diamond, you know, um, right. and uh, and really a lot of those cases could be summarized for a single sentence of what they represent. That's not, but of course in law school, it's a little trickier than that because you do have to understand the reasoning and sometimes the reasoning requires right. you to read the opinion, but that's if you want to understand the opinion. And um, I'm not actually sure having gone through law school and then, you know, passed the bar and everything. I'm not really sure how much understanding an opinion actually matters and, uh, you know, that'll sound bad. Obviously, you need to have some understanding of what's going on. But a lot of these, a lot of, you know, citations when you're actually writing something, um, the citations are to a part of, of, of a decision or um, or to how the decision is regarded. Because there's a lot of string citations. You're like, oh, this is a principle that we get from, you know, X, Y, and Z. And um, to a certain extent, if you're trying to convince a judge that this is the... This is, you know, your your position is correct. You'll be citing the the opinion for all the things that people associate with that opinion, rather than what necessarily might be hidden in footnote fifty two. Right. Well, I think that that. I mean, I'm simplifying it obviously, web, but. Yeah, I think that that well, so I think that those web webs of footnotes and all of those decisions and case law stretching back the centuries to uh, old England, you know, um, the value in that is that if you have a system where lawyers have been brought up as a profession to believe that their respect for themselves and each other is in their ability to root arguments in that web and to nest them as deeply as possible into that web of, uh, you know, of precedent, uh, is the only way that you avoid, you know, uh, decisions like Obama bad, freedom good, ACA dead, you know, which just came out of Texas, for example. Right. Um, and, you know, the fact that you have, um, I mean, just, I think it was just this last week, right, that um, there's a Planned Parenthood related case that a lot of people, judging from social media, were shocked that um, Kavanaugh, uh, sided with, I think it was Roberts. With Roberts, yeah. Yeah, to, you know, to say we're not going to, you know, to, to refuse. It was refusing cert, right? Because it was, uh, right. yeah. you know, they only needed th four judges to, you know, to agree to hear the case. And uh, Kavanaugh followed Roberts to say, like, no, we're not going to do this. And, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of potential reasons for that, but... Um, you know, one of them is likely this idea that Kavanaugh um, and Roberts or Roberts very clearly because he signaled this again and again and again. And Kavanaugh, perhaps only following Roberts, 
um, wants to make it clear that there are no Trump judges and Obama judges. There are only judges. There is the law. There is American law. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Cause it's like, it's like Tinkerbell, you know, like it, it could be true if they all acted that way. It's a matter of will, you know, on, on the individual level, um, cohering into a systemic effect. Um, but as long as you have people like, uh, Reed O'Connor, if I'm getting his name right, you know, this judge out of Texas who struck down the ACA, um, on a, you know, I, I, hopefully I was, as, uh, hopefully I was very charitable just then in talking about, um, uh, the Supreme court, because now I'm going to go into conspiracy theory mode. Okay. Like, let's, let's rev up for this. This judge sat on his opinion until after the midterms and then just canceled the ACA. I cannot accept this. I mean, it, it's, it's abominable. It's reprehensible. You know, the voters needed to know that that was happening. Right. And it just shows the contempt of so many Republicans for democracy in our country. And yeah, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Roberts. I am willing to have respect for Kavanaugh. Uh, despite what happened in the hearing. Um, but you know, as generous as I can force myself to be in some ways, there is just no denying the obvious fact that has been demonstrated for years now that, um, that a significant portion of the Republican party simply has loathing and contempt for, for voters. Um, and, you know, I am just furious uh, when I think about that. Yeah, I have to you – know, full disclosure here. I have read nothing but the headlines about the ACA case because, I mean, A, I've just been too busy. But, um, but B, because my immediate reaction when I heard, oh, some judge struck down the ACA, I was like, well, the Supreme Court has already ruled on that a bunch of times. And I have no doubt what the conclusion will be again. But then as I, you know, because at first I thought that was just like one of those little headlines that would appear and go away because everybody would go back to saying, well, the Supreme Court has already upheld it. They'll uphold it again. And um, but then people kept talking about it. And I was starting, oh, no, did I miss something? Is this does this opinion have something new that that is there anything to this opinion other than just setting things into uncertainty until it gets to the Supreme Court? I, I I wish that I knew more about that, and I will probably be reading more about it after this episode. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I think that the answer is that it is a ludicrous decision that will be struck down immediately. You know, struck down very quickly. Um, I have, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even pretend to be a lawyer. Um, but my understanding is that the central argument in this decision was that um, because the new tax law zeroed out the penalty for uh, the mandate, the coverage mandate, the individual mandate, that <clears throat> means that um, the mandate is unenforceable. The mandate has effectively been repealed, even though that's not what happened. It's just, it hasn't been repealed. It's just been, the penalties have just been zeroed out. Um, but because it has been rendered ineffective, therefore the law has had one, you know, three legged stool with one of the legs pulled away. So the law is therefore structurally unsound and therefore unconstitutional. It's an, it's, it, I mean, it just strikes me as a prima facie absurd uh, abuse of the concept of separability to say, you know, 
the law has three major parts. One of those parts is no longer effective, and therefore the law is unconstitutional. It's just, it, it just it just strikes me as insane that um, that anyone would find that reasoning compelling. Uh, and and my understanding is that you know several conservative uh, jurists, you know, several conservative um, legal thinkers have also said that this is a spurious argument. Right. Yeah, I'd have to read the opinion, which I'm not going to do, to have um, – <laughs> I mean, I probably will if it actually, like, holds up more. But, um, yeah. you know, it's not – instinctively to me, the idea that there are some pieces of legislation that sort of unravel when certain parts are changed is not completely crazy. However, um, the tax law voted to zero out the penalty, but the tax law did not vote to get rid of any of the rest of the law. And so you could argue that it is a choice. It is a policy choice that Congress made that the mandate um, that, that we've just decided that not having a penalty for not reaching the mandate is okay with the rest of Obamacare. Right. I mean, Which, if, I mean in the long term, the policy matter is terrible, but. You know. Right. Exactly. If Congress wanted to put, a huge weight on private insurers and change the, the policy environment to make it so that private insurers would have to, uh, you know, would have to, um, you know, issue coverage uh, and not take pre-existing conditions into account. Um, but the, but individuals were not forced through any uh, real, enforceable means to to get coverage okay you're putting a huge burden on private insurers but is that unconstitutional or is he making a claim is it, is it a takings you know i mean that again strikes me as an absurd argument um i mean there are all sorts of things that congress has the right to you know all sorts of sort of economic sectors that congress has the right to make prohibitively difficult to enter Right. Right. I mean, it's not it's not unconstitutional. I mean, it could be unconstitutional, but it's not ipso facto unconstitutional. It strikes me again as this in this instance that it's that it's clearly not. Yeah. It's legislating from the bench. I mean, it, it just could not. I mean, again, no, it's only legislating. From the, done that much. It's only legislating from the bench if it's a liberal policy. When Obama does it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's look, we said a lot of nasty I mean, you just said, you just said a liberal policy. It's not even a liberal policy. This is right. the conservative way of supplying health care to as many Americans as possible. You know, it's the it's the Heritage Plan plus it's the Romney Plan plus. You know, Obama did it because Obama is fundamentally a centrist, um, and so it's not about being liberal. It's about if Obama did it or if Democrats did it. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, we've said a lot of nasty things about Republicans on this podcast because we started it, you know, over a year ago and about a year and a half ago. We've done a fair number of episodes. We've said I think one of our was our second or third episode was a very anti GOP episode. And I feel like in the time since we've done some of that early on, I thought, oh, are we not necessarily being too hard, but are we just letting ourselves get consumed by that leftist view of, Oh, you know, they're the other side and they're doing all these bad things. They must be completely terrible. They have, if anything, gotten worse over the last year and a half. The, yeah. The, the stuff that's going on in Wisconsin and Michigan is like if you wanted to create a leftist parody of what you'd say Republicans would do, it'd be a lot of stuff they've done over the last year. Yeah. And the way they talk even. And in and in North Carolina, it just it just continues in North Carolina. Right. And, you know, again, we're not doing we're not saying these things because we have, you know, <laughs> because we're leftists. Because again, I think, I mean, if there were a party that called itself a conservative party that were not just laughably hypocritical, blind to the challenges actually facing our country and our planet, um, you know, in bed with the most despicable people, uh, or not in bed with, but, you know, subservient to Trump and, and the band of criminals that he's gathered around himself, you know, I would be, I'd be desperate to support that party, but that's not what we have. 
it just doesn't exist. And I mean, this is the position of uh, this trickle of people who are uh, sort of publicly renouncing their um, their membership in the Republican Party. The latest one being some some public official in California. Oh yes, the Chief Justice of California right, State right. Supreme Court, if I recall correctly. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, of course, it's sort of ridiculous that we have partisan judge elections in states anyway, but <laughs> that's a separate issue. Right. Well, that gets back, gets back to this this thing I was talking about of the of the sort of noble lie of uh, you know of the nonpartisan judiciary. But. Um, yeah, but it's but, I mean it's a real it's a real challenge, but it's like <laughs> I think uh I don't think any actual leftist would confuse me with being a leftist. You know, but it's just this weird moment that we're in generationally as a country where there's there's no actual conservative party in this country. Yeah, I mean I say this country in America. At this at this moment, as we're recording this, every action the GOP has undertaken has suggested that its its influence is itself. Like it, that's its goal. That its its agenda is to preserve its own power. Um, and every single thing that it um, every single thing that it does as a policy matter is subservient to that fact. Which some people right. would argue is true of any political party. That all political parties change when you know the winds shift and they have to. But um, I don't know. Well, I mean, and there are, there are tests because, okay, so just again, let's, let's speak in some degree of specifics, you know, so in Maine over the past several years, voters have continually, uh, supported, re uh, in referenda expanding, uh, you know, access to, um, the ACA's you know, buy-in, right. uh, you know, expanding market access or access to the exchanges. And um, the Republican governor has simply refused to implement those referenda, despite being obligated to by the state constitution, <clears throat> just refused to do so. Uh, finally, you know, new governor, new uh, state house, you know, Maine has become a uh, wholly democratically dominated state and including losing it. You know, the last Republican uh, member of the legislative delegation from new England, Bruce Poliquin knocked out by Maine's adoption of ranked choice voting. So you know, here you have a really, uh, you know, a lesson to the rest of the country in terms of um, innovation to determine uh, it with better uh, precision, the will of the people, right? The rank, ranked choice voting system. By contrast, you have, or sort of in keeping with LePage's policy of simply ignoring the, the wills, the will of the voters, you have in, you know, Wisconsin and in Michigan and in North Carolina two years ago, um, you have, you know, change in the legislature, or excuse me, change in the governor's office. But after, you know, as a result of gerrymandering, making the state house uh, dominated by Republicans, once the governor, uh, you know, once the, the, the governor's position shifted from Republican to Democrat, the lame duck uh, legislature simply says, OK, we're going to strip the governor of all of his powers. I mean, it's just forgive me if I mean, obviously, you know everything that I was saying before I said it, but you know, it happened two years ago in North Carolina and now it happened uh, just now. I mean, just this, this Friday was when um, right. Walker signed the legislation in uh, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah, right? I, it's just, it's just despicable. It's absolutely despicable. It is. And I have a couple of quick responses to get out here. First, you will hear all about Maine and ranked choice voting on the podcast with my conservative friend who is from Maine and has very strong oh, opinions about that. Um, Secondly, um, as takes the, you know, we've mentioned, we mentioned, I think on the last episode that, um, in Wisconsin, the Democrats had lost by about 125,000 votes for the state legislative seats, you know, overall in total vote count in the last election. And they, and, you know, getting 125,000 fewer votes, they got, they got, uh, was it like 30, 36 out of 99 seats or something like that. And then 
This year, when you they, say in the last, you mean two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. And then, yeah. or whatever the last election was for them, um, I don't know what their their terms are. And then in this most recent year, they got two hundred fifty thousand more votes overall and managed to improve their number of seats by one. Like they got right. two hundred fifty thousand more seats and still got one third of of the seats. Like that's that's kind of crazy. And uh, a phrase that was made a while ago by David Frum, which really has been coming back into vogue, particularly this week in regards to Wisconsin, David Frum, uh, you know, former Bush, George W. Bush speechwriter um, and conservative writer has said, uh, he said, if, if Republicans find that um, if conservatives find that conservatism can't win elections, they won't abandon conservatism. They'll abandon democracy. Right. And that's what's happening. They're not winning the elections. And so they're trying to they're trying to make the votes matter less and less. And when you listen to some of it's like I find I am actually really concerned by um, some of the shifts in rhetoric about whose votes should count, because if you go to 2008, John Stewart had a lot. Of, John Stewart had this wonderful thing that really summed up how I felt. And in 2008, I wasn't even living in a city. Um, Sarah Palin, when she was nominated uh, as the vice presidential candidate, she started talking about how great small towns were. And right. John Stewart had this had this one episode where he just was like, basically he was saying like, "Screw you! Are you saying that like those of us in cities are just awful? Like we suck?" And he went on this rant, which I was like, I don't know that I'd ever really consciously been thinking about that much up to that point. But you know, the Republicans use a lot of anti-city rhetoric. Privilege. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, now I've lived in the city for a while. Where we don't even get you know, representatives and voting representatives in Congress. So, um, yeah. but anyway, so if you, if you like think for a moment about what would happen if the Democrats talked about rural voters, the way the Republicans talk about city voters, right. To which a conservative would say, Oh, they do think that they think we're hillbillies and they think we're rubes and they think we're whatever. It's like, they don't go up on stage and say that at their conventions. In fact, right. I've been well, to enough why, liberal meetings the and they're not saying line, it at all, so, but well, that's why the deplorables line was such an explosive thing and, a, and such a rallying cry for for Trump voters. Right. Was that they they convinced themselves again, you know, because they didn't listen to the rest of the sentence, right? They didn't listen to the right, you know, to the several bullet points following that that expression. Um, but you know, because they could so easily use it to, or not? Excuse me, I um, I was conflating a couple different things. Um. That's conflating the deplorables line with the um, we're going to shut down the mines uh, mm. thing. But anyway. Uh, well, you said stands the deplorables line as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but part – I mean there's some real – there's some really deep problems with our country that um, – you know – I mean, it, it just goes back to the it goes back to the Lincoln thing, um, <clears throat> where every uh, you know, because there are two parts of the line where he talks about every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid, paid for by ten, another drawn with the sword, drop you know drawn with the sword, and before that he talks about the wealth piled up by. Bonds the bondsman's 150 years of unrequited toil or whatever the period is. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, he says you know, every, uh, effectively every brick placed up, piled up, you know, by the bondsman will have to be torn down. All the wealth built up by that, that blood money uh, will have to be destroyed. And, you know, as well as the blood paid back in blood uh, if if that's what God's providence requires. And, you know, that's not a win-win. That's not, that's not like happy consultant talk. That's not can do American spirit, you know, let's heal the, let's heal and move forward together. Right. Um, but that is potentially the kind of thing that we're facing again, where these, despicable ideas about what it means to be an American that are being tossed about, um, that are used to callously deflect, again, death in the last week. You know, just 
callously deflect blame for the death of a child under the custody of the American government. You know, and this is one of these things where, you know, if only, if only a decent, uh, humane journal of ideas, maybe this position is out there already. Maybe this has been articulated in, in the way I would want it to be, you know, could say, okay, the facts of this particular case are such that everything was done according, you know, by the book, everything was done well. The border patrol agents actually bent over backwards to save this child. Nothing could be done. It's just with, with so many people under these circumstances, there's just no way that her life could be saved. You know, I find that it's a very plausible argument. It's probably true. But the way that the Trump administration is deflected to say, oh, don't blame us, blame her father, you know, for marching her through the desert. Blame all these people who are putting their children at risk. You know, imagine the selfishness of these people who are putting their children at risk to come, you know, illegally into the United States. The lack of humanity, the, 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 yeah, just depravity. It's depravity to see a human being and to see a child on the other end of that story and to, and to respond in that way. Or the, you know, the way that the, that the administration has uh, perfected, you know, in their, in their shifting of responsibility. I mean, so much of what just, Trump is and where the success comes from is the ability to kill people's empathy and compassion. To kill it by making them angry, making them feel these negative emotions. Um, I'm remind. So there was a there's a Star Trek Next Generation episode many years ago where Data's android brother Lore is manipulating him by feeding him emotions, which he does not <laughs> normally get to experience. And um, he the first one he feels is anger, and he's concerned because he doesn't know what's going on. He goes to Troy, the ship's counselor, and she says emotions are not positive and negative. You don't have to worry that you're just feeling what you think are negative emotions. But of course, that really isn't where the episode ends up going. And Lore is using negative emotions to make Data do awful things. And I mean, I don't know. I When I look at the motivating factors behind a lot of things that the two parties are doing, the liberals, one, the liberals tend to be motivated by compassion for people who need help. And the Republican right. ones tend to be anger towards people they don't think deserve help. Right. And... I'm, I mean, obviously they would deny that and say that that's not the case. And oh, liberals hate, I don't know, something. They hate Christians and they hate white people and, and all of that stuff. And yeah. I mean, I, I must have missed all of those discussions at the meetings of liberals. But, um, <laughs> right. you know, that's supposedly a position. Well, well, particularly, particularly the fact that, like, again, this whole concept of, like, oh, the face of the Democratic Party is on, you know, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. It's like... Look at the actual numbers. Look at the actual facts. Like the DCCC won like 80% of their primaries and those candidates overwhelmingly won their races. Like the centrist sort of establishment of the Democratic Party won this election. You know, Nancy Pelosi and the Blue Dogs in 2006 basically made a comeback in 2018. And like, yes, you also have people who call themselves socialists and people who are directly, you know, inspired by Bernie Sanders, but, um, like, yeah, they have a place at the table. It's a big country with a lot of different positions and you have what is effectively the green, you know, the, the American, I mean, there is an actual American green party, but like the people who would vote for green parties in Germany or Britain or Poland or whatever, you know, who are voting for Bernie and AOC and, um, you know. Uh, it kind of amuses me that you're even having trouble coming up with a third person here. 
It's like, oh, that's what well, the Democratic I mean, Party. I mean, it's not that there yeah. aren't. Like, if we if we paused for a minute, you'd probably come up with several. But you know, yeah. it's kind of funny that they're like, oh, this is what the party is like. And you know, we could just start naming a bunch of centrist Democrats. And well, exactly. And instead, well, you're sort of like, right. wait, what were the other crazy Democrats? Because right, there's Todd Lamb and Jared Golden, and you know, Joe a bunch Manchin of people and John Tester and exactly, and a bunch of the people who won in California, right? I mean, because you know, they won. How did they win? They won by going into Orange County and convincing Republicans to vote for them. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, 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 I've, I, I have let this slip my mind for too long. Going back to gerrymandering, um, you know, there's an acid test for Democrats, too, which is the state of New Jersey, which is, exactly. I agree. you know, about to implement a really reprehensible um, gerrymandering scheme. And, you know, if the national party doesn't drop the hammer on them, it'll be a huge mistake. I agree. Um, absolutely unforgivable mistake. Um, yeah, because, because the point is for there to be a difference, there has to be a difference, right? You know, for you to talk about the difference of these parties, you have to actually, you know, inhabit the difference. And if it were a, an actual matter of like life and death where, you know, <clears throat> uh, I mean, if it's an actual matter of life and death, then you could start talking about the means justifying the ends. But if it's about taking the control of the state house from, you know, 52% to 60%, that doesn't strike me as worth it. No. You know, by any means, uh, particularly when, uh, particularly in the situation that we're in now. No, Which also, right. going back to, you know, ends justifying the means and the two parties are the same, uh, the fate of Michael Avenatti is another, hmm. you know, salutary. Democrats couldn't jump him fast enough. Oh <laughs> like, my God. Was... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think it was, I think it was always just a media narrative. I mean, I can't... And, there, there are probably there probably are numbers on this as well, but like, yeah, who who ever thought that he was seriously supported by anyone? Um, yeah, other than the people who wanted to say, oh yeah, the Democrats are going to go crazy, just like Trump supporters did, and they're going to look for their own Trump, you know? Right. I mean, it is yeah. I, I, you know I, some people are mad at Kirsten Gillibrand for you know, ousting Franken as quickly as she did. Um, but as much as I was sad to see Al Franken go, I do think that it is incredibly valuable for the party to have made that statement that we're not going to give a pass just because it's somebody on our side. Yeah. And well, I absolutely. think they need to do that in New Jersey and they needed to do it with Michael Avenatti. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if Al Franken makes some sort of comeback in politics eventually. Um, you know, the, the scope of his offenses is real, real enough that he should pay a price for it. And he did. He paid a very big price for it. But, you know, it's one that he can – that's one that I, I think you can reasonably come back from. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, – like for a lot of things, it's like, you know, why is the pre – why, why can the president not be indicted? Because the founders created a system where the solution – was supposed to be political, not legal. That you have, I mean, this is my interpretation of, I, mean, I understand that there's a, there's a significant debate over. Yeah. And there um, are a lot of people yeah, who think you can indict a president. The de yeah. Or that the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors is not just whatever the Congress says is a high crime and dis misdemeanor, right. i.e. a political definition, but is in fact a legal definition. I think it is very clear. Or my, my interpretation is it's very clear that the, that the founders you know, the founders, I mean, it's one of these amazing tensions in the Constitution between, uh, now this is, this is going to get dense, so hopefully I'll be able to do this, like, clearly and quickly, but, you know, I was so watching... You have negative the, three minutes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll just stop myself then, uncharacteristically. Oh, but wow, the, okay. the, the point is that, um, the, the short version, you know, there's clearly a tension between the legal and the political in the American system. And it strikes me as, if so, sort of, you know, as, as clear on its face that, um, 
uh, impeachment is a is it was intended to be a political act uh, outside of the legal system, the judicial system, to constrain the president. And in a similar way, um, you know, what Franken was accused of doing was important enough to react to that the Democratic Party had an option, and I believed at the time and still believe, um, the duty to uh, to pressure him to step aside you know, for, for doing uh, or in, you know, in its response. But, um, <clears throat> but now, you know, Franken as an individual, as a member of the party, as a resident of the state of Minnesota, you know, has the option himself to take his case to the voters to say, I didn't do anything illegal. You decide whether, you know, I, I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't have to go to prison. I did do something wrong. I am contrite. I have expressed contrition. Here are the ways I've expressed contrition. Uh, here's what I intend to do for you. Do you now give me a role in public service to to serve the people? And, you know, that's the people's decision, right? Like, I, I think he should. Um, I mean, if he wants to, I think he should make that case. Right. He'd probably uh, be running for governor or something when, when that's up. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Since the Senate seats will be held longer. All right, well, uh, that'll do it for this week's episode. I just want to say goodbye by letting everyone know I finally worked up the courage to stick this needle into my shirt and experiment with sewing. I am a little nervous because I haven't sewn anything in like 20 years, but uh, how bad could it possibly go? And we'll line it up and get the button and... Oh, God, why? No! No!